1 Corinthians 8, we'll read the whole chapter. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we eat, if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This evening we're going to be thinking about quite a challenging um, set of ethical questions, I suppose. And, uh, and uh, those set of questions revolve around the issue of how close you can get to someone else before the decisions and the actions that they take begin to implicate you. Okay, So how close can you get to someone else's decisions and behaviour? And the closer you get you start to get a bit implicated in the kinds of things that they're doing and they're saying. Let me try and illustrate it, because we can see it in loads of different ways. Uh, We'll see it in one particular, uh, very first Corinthians, uh, uh, first century kind of way, but it applies in loads of different areas. So say, for example, can you bake a cake for somebody uh, when the person asks you to write a slogan on the cake which you profoundly disagree with? If you made that cake, are you complicit in the decision that the person who um, holds that view has or can you uh, buy meat from a halal butcher where the money that you're giving is being used to fund a worldview that you don't believe in are you complicit in that or maybe you uh, in years to come um, uh, own a guest house and you decide to rent rooms out in your guest house to people who are not married and they want to sleep in that room and they don't love Jesus and you think well you making that guest room available for them are you complicit in what goes on inside that room or maybe uh, if you are voting a, an election and all the political parties or the political candidates are are kind of questionable 
to some degree or another. And they don't really align with where you stand all the way down. Does your vote make the choices that that party is doing? Are you complicit in what that uh, um, party does and so on and so forth. I thought I'm sure you think of loads of areas where you're quite close to the decisions and the actions that someone else is making and maybe just maybe you getting closer makes you a little bit complicit or does it and um, maybe over 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 supper if you're having some uh, staying down further after eight you want to think about how how do we think this through where are the areas of tension for us as Christians, as I guess many of us are Christian believers here this evening. Uh, this evening we are in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 8, and it's carrying on our series that we were looking at just a couple of weeks ago, but you wouldn't really know it, would you, from our passage that was really a huge gear change, um, out with issues of sexuality and uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage, um, in with what food can you eat? And where can you eat that food? And uh, who made that food that you are going to eat? And uh, say they love Jesus. Say they don't love Jesus. Does that make a difference on what you can do? Chapter 7 seemed very relevant, didn't it, to all of us, uh, whether we were married or single, um, whether we were in relationships, whether we were same-sex attracted, whatever our kind of background, it felt very relevant. Whereas chapter 8 um, and 9 and 10, which are really a unit... Uh, feels much more alien to us. I mean, very live an issue in the first century. Um, though even today, in the 21st century, if we were in a different part of the world, issues to do with what we eat, I suppose, to a degree here in the UK, certainly maybe in some of the kind of um, the, the ethnic minority places in, in, in Cardiff, how you eat, where your food is sourced, the way what you're buying might implicate you or not, and how other people who are observing those decisions will be affected, they're actually quite relevant uh, decisions. Now, we need to be uh, crystal clear, um, just a few little kind of introductory comments before we, we pick up two quite simple lessons that I think have quite binding, life-giving principles for us today um, from, these, uh, from this chapter. We're only looking at chapter 8 uh, this evening. A um, couple of introductory things, what this chapter isn't to do with it. It's not to do with whether you can eat meat or not. So it's not a kind of a case for vegetarianism or not, or veganism or not, as the case may be. Neither is this chapter about Old Testament food laws. And some of you, maybe you've been along to the CE Events Week this last week, and this is the first time you've ever been to church building. Well, in the Old Testament, there were various laws that were written down many, many hundreds of years ago, and certainly you know, many hundreds of years, even before the, the New Testament part of the Bible, to do with the kinds of foods that you ate. And in my quiet times at the moment, I'm reading the book of Leviticus, and there's loads about different foods that you can eat, clean, unclean food. And in some books of the New Testament, the book of Acts or the book of Galatians, those books particularly deal with issues to do with food laws and whether you should eat this kind of food or that kind of food, particularly given the, the wider church community. That's not really the issue here at stake in chapter 8. The key kind of eating is um, literally idle food, or as our versions say, food sacrificed to idols. Now, um, it's been several weeks since we uh, did a bit of an introduction, but right at the start of our studies, we saw that in a, the, the, the world of Corinth, there were hundreds of pagan temples and um, pagan worship, worshipping loads and loads of different ancient gods. And uh, like throughout the, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, lots of the pagan worship that took place involved the slaughter of animals. It would have stunk unbelievably if you walked near those pagan temples. And um, there were issues to do with things that um, food that had been eaten in a temple worship service. Um, maybe uh, the food had been 
uh, cut and killed inside a, uh, an ancient temple worship service, but was being now sold in a meat market. Um, maybe it was been bought from who knows where, but you were going to take it home to eat in your own home and uh, in a private um, kind of act of provision for your family. And the question is, should Christians do all that? Should they buy food that has been sacrificed up, kind of upstream to idols? And uh, in, in the exchange of kind of goods and services, I give you some money, you give me some food that's been sacrificed to idols. Are you not complicit in the sin of that idolatry? That's the question that's hanging behind chapters 8, 9 and 10. As I say, it's quite a, re- uh, quite a kind of niche issue that may not feel very relevant to us. But you step back and apply it into the wider issue of the degree to which you can engage in, in an act that is close to someone who's doing something you don't agree with. It's actually quite relevant. Anyway, in this particular context, uh, in answer to the question, should Christians eat or buy food that has been sacrificed to idols, the answer is, it depends. <laughs> it depends. And that will really infuriate some of us who are kind of more black and white kind of people. And for others of us who are a bit more grayscale, we're like, yeah, great, it depends. And, uh, and I suppose, uh, just kind of racing through the way the argument is going to unfold, if the meat is eaten in the context of worship in a pagan temple in the first century again very different from our context but if it's eaten in that context the answer is no don't do that and that's really chapter 8 verses 1 to chapter 10 verse 22 a huge section and then uh, if the meat though is bought in the meat market without knowing where it's come from uh, from um, if if that's the kind of sourcing you're just buying it from a meat market well the answer is yes you are free to do that that's chapter 10 verses 25 to 26 and we'll study these passages in greater detail in the next couple of weeks so I'll just give you a bit of a flyover and then uh, the question is if it's eaten in a private home so you've bought it in a meat market you're eating in a private home but there are other people around who might have a conscience that's slightly different from where you land on the issue, then the answer is possibly no. You might be free to do it yourself, but someone else is watching and it's really chewing them up seeing you do this. And so you might better make the call, I'm not going to do that for the sake of this other Christian who's observing. And uh, that's really from chapter uh, 10, verses 27 to chapter 11, verse 1. In other words, it depends. This is one of those issues, a bit like what we were looking at this morning with Matt Bounds, like the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, where we're we're thinking about the issue of wisdom. And we do need to be wise, and we need to be wise as we study God's word. It's quite a challenging chapter uh, this evening, and we need to be wise as we seek to apply it to our lives, which are a very different context from the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to be wise as we seek to apply these ancient words to our very different context. So let's bow our heads and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we think of the Old Testament where Samuel was encouraged to say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And we, so we do pray Lord God that you would speak now because we're listening. Yet even having heard that passage read, it does seem quite different from our context and therefore quite difficult to understand and apply and so we pray for great wisdom as we seek to do that now that we would live lives that more give glory to your son our savior the lord jesus christ we pray in his name amen Okay, so we're going to see two very brief lessons uh, in our short time together this evening, and we'll try and apply them as we go. So here's our first uh, point. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been set free. 
Have we got that on the screen behind me? Let me see. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been set free to live. Set free to live. That really is the conclusion to the argument of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, But we need to dig into the text a little bit more to see how uh, Paul gets us there. Remember, Paul, if you've been uh, studying uh, 1 Corinthians over the last uh, few months with us here at Highfields, Paul has been answering a range of different questions that the Corinthians had asked him in a correspondence. So when we read 1 Corinthians, it's it's like us listening in on a telephone conversation that he's having where we're only hearing his answers. We can hear and then he gives his answer and the question in the background um, is introduced really by the phrase now about so uh, if you have got a bible there you want to flick around a little bit so in chapter 7 verse 1 he said now about and talked about sexuality and marriage and then in chapter 7 verse 25 he said now about singleness and then we get a whole load more references to that kind of um, uh, uh, phrase now about chapter 8 verse 1 now about food sacrifice to idols Uh, Then in chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. And then if you're flicking over some more pages, if you want to, now about uh, the collection for the Lord's people, which is what um, uh, Paul talks about uh, near the end. And uh, in chapter 16, verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. And uh, stick with us to find out what Paul has got to say about our brother Apollos. But this section, we're in chapter 8, and it really goes from chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. That's the big kind of heart of it. And uh, like with those other issues, while um, food is the surface issue, that's the kind of conversation starter that Paul is having with uh, the Corinthians, there is actually a heart issue, a deeper issue that goes below the surface of that um, kind of open front, front of house issue of food. And the issue for Paul, just like in other areas, is that the way the Corinthians were thinking about food and the kind of food that they eat and the kind of sourcing of the food that they ate was actually driving a wedge within the church family. Uh, you may remember that we've seen over the course of um, uh, the last seven months that one of the biggest issues in the book of uh, Corinthians is the issue of church unity. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to flick back to chapter 1, verse 10. This is what uh, Paul said to uh, the church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. In what you're saying, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. See, the trouble is the Corinthians are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. And divisions were running throughout the church body. And we saw before Christmas that God takes the unity and the health of the church incredibly seriously. That's not just a kind of a little, oh, if you can be united that's a bonus tick for the church. Now, that's absolutely integral into what it means to be the church. We need to be a united family. And therefore, any kind of tribalism or fault lines that develop, and by the way, it's totally possible, even in our day, for tribalism and fault lines to occur within our church body. The singles over there, the marrieds over there, the young over there, the old over there, the families over there, the internationals over there. Very, very easy. Those who've been to university, those who haven't, lines develop all over the place. No, we are one body in Christ and we need to live out our unity in a very tangible, obvious way. And as other people see that, we pray that they would say, wow, isn't God amongst us? That's what we'll see later on in the year. 
Uh, anyway, uh, Paul says, stop it. Fundamental um, loyalty is to belong to Jesus Christ. He is to be our ultimate desire, ultimate longing, more than any kind of circumstance we find ourselves in, any relationship status we have. He is number one. So let's go back into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, it seems you've got there are two groups within the church. One group is very, very nervous about eating food sacrificed to idols. Very nervous about it. And presumably their fear is because they think that eating that food will render them complicit in this idolatry. It will be them kind of nodding and, and saying, yeah, we're fine with idolatry. Let's just eat their food. Implication, yeah. You know, I'm kind of in that world. I'm happy to kind of contribute to it and be a, a, a participant in that culture. And so they're very nervous about it. And they would say, don't eat. That's one group within the church. But it seems that there was another group within the church who were very, very happy to eat meat that was sacrificed uh, sacrifice to idols. Sacrificed to idols? Pah, idols don't even exist. Um, so just crack on with eating it. No problems whatsoever. Well, how does Paul arbitrate between these two groups of people? You can see them on the screen. Team eat and team don't eat. Well, he begins by talking uh, with team eat, I suppose. Let's see how he teases the argument out. Look down verse, uh, verse um, 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that all, we all possess knowledge. And it seems at this point that Paul is talking to team eat and he's saying, uh, actually, teammate, you do have knowledge on your side. Now, knowledge is a big word in the book of Corinthians. And uh, uh, the, uh, there was a certain kind of knowledge that they were very proud about. But actually, Paul is very clear. Uh, it is true. You do know the truth about idols. And that truth about idols is, idols are nothing. So jump down to verse 4. Have a look down at verse 4. We're going to kind of jump around these early verses of the chapter. Uh, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know, same word, knowledge, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. In other words, Paul is, at that point, agreeing with team eat. Yeah, sure, just eat what you like. It's fine, eat what you like, because idols are they're nothing. Like, don't decide what you do or don't do on the basis of a nothing. And at that point, Paul is lining himself up with some of the great leaders and speakers in the whole of the Bible who've decried the nothingness of idols. So if you uh, know anything about the Old Testament, there was a prophet called Elijah. And once upon a time, he was talking uh, to the whole load of prophets of Baal, a false god, false idols. And he mocked them and said you know, they, they were kind of beating themselves up and trying to you know, demonstrate how wonderful they were. But they couldn't do a thing. They had no power. They were... They were deaf, they were dumb, they were dead. There's nothing there, uh, said Elijah to the prophets of Babel. So to Isaiah, you may think of, another great Old Testament prophet. And Isaiah talked about how ironic it is, who is an idolater, someone who worships a created thing. He chops down a tree, chops the tree, he's chopped down in half. Half the tree, he throws into the fire to keep himself warm. It's a cold day, let's warm up. And then the other half of the tree, he crafts into an idol and then bows down to the idol and... and and Isaiah is deliberately kind of sending this guy up and saying, this is ridiculous, it's stupid, idols are nothing. They're just pieces of wood that you could throw into the fire to, to keep yourself warm. Now, of course, we do need to remember that uh, though we might not be tempted to bow down to an idol like a statue like that today, idolatry still has a massive appeal for us. It doesn't need to be a statue, of course. It can be any kind of created thing that we put in the place of a creator. We just need to be really clear about that, that though idols are nothing, strangely we're still drawn to worshipping idols. A, a good thing, a created thing, 
becomes a God thing and gets enshrined as number one. Whether that is the relationship we're longing for, it's a good thing. It's become a God thing and we want to bow down and live our lives in pursuit of that one thing. Or the degree, I've got to get the degree, or I've got to get the job, I've got to get a house. I've got to get the sporting prowess I long for. My team has got to thrive and succeed. And, and we kind of invest all our longing and our trust in that one idol. It's a good thing, yes. It must never be exalted and worshipped and enshrined as a God thing. That's foolish. No way. Now, actually, in some Asian cultures particularly, physical idolatry, shrines and so forth, in, in some African cultures too, are very common. Uh, but most of us Westerners here today, I guess, it's hopes and dreams are on our sports or our careers or our relationships or our, our children or our success or our acclaim or our approval. If you invest so much in that, you'll be disappointed, friends. They'll fail you. They were never meant to bear the weight of our longings and our hopes and our dreams. They will fail. It's foolish. Idols are nothing. But Jesus is everything. And that's where Paul goes in this amazing declaration uh, that he says here. Uh, he talks about the honour, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So idols are nothing. And uh, where are we? Verse, um, uh, verse 10. But there is no God but one. Carries on. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotes, or many lords, lots of things that would vie for our attention and try to con- control us with their power. Yet for us, for those who are in relationship with Jesus, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. That's a powerful verse. At that point, amazingly, Paul, the Jewish monotheist, effectively takes some ancient words, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, the Shema, which is the great declaration of the the oneness of God, which was drummed into little Jewish children from the day they were born as far as they could get. They just declared there is one God, there is one God, we worship him. And yes, there is, and we worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. We worship him as Lord too. It's not just a kind of a, a, a pure monotheistic religion. We believe in a Trinitarian God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, each equally God. And it's through Jesus everything came. And in him we live. Through him we live. Our lives are found in him. We're going to sing, yet yeah, not I, but Christ in me in a moment. The reason we're here today is because of Jesus. He is the, the glue, if you can put it that way, that holds the church together. He holds us together. He's made us. He loves us. He's formed us. He's created us for a relationship with him. And if we trust in him, he has saved us into his family. It's a powerful phrase, isn't it? Through him, all things came. And through whom we live. And we're not to live, not to be energised, be animated by career. By money, by the pursuit of a relationship or a, or a family or, or, a, or comfort. Now our lives are found, are made alive in him. We're set free from sin and death and, and imprisonment by him. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, we see. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed 
thee. And knowing him, knowing this King Jesus who has come to set us free, he enables us to see reality as it truly is. And that reality is that where once idols enslaved us, now in the light of Jesus Christ, as his light shines on what was once an idol, we see that's an idol. That's hollow. That's empty. Go away from it. I don't want to worship an idol. That's a, that's a nothing. Jesus is my all in all. That is what should happen as we see in the light of Christ. What should happen? Sometimes it doesn't always happen. So look down in verse 7. But not every one of us, not every one possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Very interesting point of Paul at that point, isn't it? You see, at that point, you see, Paul is telling his readers to have a think about those who haven't yet realised that idols are nothing. The fact is, idols are nothing. If we're seeing in the light of Christ, he's exposed the folly of idols, idols are nothing, then we would see them as just lumps of wood that could be ignored and, and, and forgotten about. But some people haven't yet fully grasped how empty idols are. And uh, so Paul, at this point, wants to say, well, have a think about uh, team don't eat. And he kind of spends a bit of time thinking about them. And by the way, this isn't the only point that Paul is going to make about uh, food sacrifice to idols. It's coming on in, a, in future weeks about the danger of idolatry. But if you've been so entrenched in a pagan background, a, a background that has no understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but is kind of enmeshed in a very different religious culture, maybe a kind of a, an Asian culture, a Hindu or Muslim friends, people who've come to Christ from that kind of background, then it may well be that they are super, super sensitive about issues of idolatry, where someone from a more Western materialistic background are just like blasé about an idol. And when we're told that Jesus is number one, well, fine, let's forget all the idols. But someone who's from a very kind of um, traditional uh, background, an ethnic background, say someone from an Asian background, maybe even a, a, an African background, where idol worship shrines are really, really important. This is huge. And Paul needs to say, it's true, food won't bring you nearer to God. And it won't keep you away from God. The fact is you only get close to God because of God, because of his free grace to you. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he has set you free to live, not because of what you have done. Eating this food, worn this kind of clothing, had a haircut this particular way, raised your family in this particular religious culture. No, you have been saved by his free grace. The Lord Jesus Christ offering himself to you, saying, I'll live the life you should have lived. I'll die the death you should have died. I'll rise again in glory for you new life, if you would but turn from living for yourself and trust in me alone. That's the offer. And once you've had that work in you, you're free to live. Yeah, you're free to eat that food or not eat that food. That's absolutely fine. But you need to be really careful in the, in the decision whether to eat or not eat might actually do something incredibly dangerous in the life of another believer. And that moves us to our second point. And uh, we'll see it in the way that uh, Paul makes it. So if point one is if your relationship with Jesus, he set you free to live. Yeah, you can eat, you can drink, you can, you can go to that place, you can go to another place or not do those things. But point two, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Hugely important point. 
Use your freedom, the freedom that Christ has set you free to enjoy all of created goods that are kind of not ethically dubious. You can totally enjoy life, but use your freedom wisely to bless other people in love and not to destroy them. Wow. Why? Because God takes the unity of his church incredibly seriously. He really does. He absolutely does. In fact, Paul set out his stall at the start of the chapter. So look back in chapter 8, verse 1. So now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Important lesson for us. You see, you can know the truth about Jesus Christ and him being the only one that will satisfy and set you free. You can know that truth in your head. You can know that... Outside of Jesus, you're a slave, but with him, you are liberated to live the life you're made to live. Not trying to pursue an identity in your career or in your money or in your sex life or in your freedom. No, you can just trust him, live for him. You can know that. You can know all the songs at church off by heart with your eyes closed. You can know all the words of the Apostles' Creed or the UCCF doctrinal basis. And they will be very good things for you to do, by the way. But, as uh, one writer, Andrew Wilson, memorably says, knowing things can make our egos and heads bigger. Loving people can make our brothers and sisters bigger. And we need to make them bigger. We need to build up the body around us. Because God takes the health, the unity of his people incredibly seriously. Uh, Paul, remember, he was making the case that while Christians are free to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, in certain contexts we'll see as the couple of weeks unfold, sometimes the loving thing to do is to restrain your freedom for the good of someone else. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that, yeah, you are free to do loads of different things, but you're going to decide I'm not going to do that, not because I, I couldn't do it, But because I won't do it. Because doing it will cause someone else who loves Jesus to stumble. It will cause them pain and confusion. So look down, verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. They're, they're kind of led down the path to eating this, this food, which for them is, is, is true idolatry. And, and, and you, as someone who modelled that path to them, you've just kind of said, yeah, go, off you go and do it. And they're just chewed up and destroyed by the knowledge that you have. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow, isn't that powerful? Christ sees the health and the unity of the body around him and that the love we demonstrate with one another in the church family that we're part of, he sees that as Christ's body, literally his body around us. You destroy Christ, you sin against Christ when you sin against someone else's conscience. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul is desperately concerned that the the health of the body, the unity of the body, is not undermined. Now, we can apply this in loads of different ways. He's talking about uh, food sacrifice to idols. I think it's probably less of a direct issue for us or for all of us right now, but there may be other issues. Take alcohol. 
It's very clear if you read the Bible that uh, Christians are absolutely not free to get drunk. That's crystal clear. But we are free to drink as long as it's in moderation and in restraint. And it, it might be that your freedom to drink just a little, you renege that freedom because you're seeking to share the gospel with someone who you know alcohol is a pretty big issue. Uh, or maybe someone who it's been an issue in their past and you enjoying the freedom to have your pint while you're sharing the gospel with them or seeking to do a Bible study is just destroying them and leading them down a path. But there's no kind of, it's not that the drinking was wrong, but in your case, you decide, actually, I'm not going to decide, I'm not going to drink for the sake of uh, uh, the brothers and the sisters around us. I think of my old, uh, uh, my old boss, someone called Mark Dever in the States. He's someone who, who experienced alcoholism in his family growing up. His, I think, father was an alcoholic. And so he resolved never to touch a, a, a spot of alcohol all of his life. Yet when he became the pastor of uh, the church, he became uh, the leader of in Washington, D.C. Within the church constitution, the church rules had a clause that you had to be teetotal to be a member of the church. And he thought, now that's really interesting. I, i.e. Mark Dever, am teetotal, but in the church rules, you have to be teetotal. And he thought, that's too strong. So one of the first things he did was he took out the teetotal clause from the church rules, even though he himself was a teetotal. He realised that this is one of those issues where it's a quote-unquote secondary issue, we have a different view, but making that a law that everyone had to abide by was actually going to be something that make sharing the gospel with, with young professionals who want to go out and have a drink very, very difficult. Can you see how there's no right or wrong, black and white, but grey scales where we need great wisdom to not destroy someone who might land slightly differently to where we are. It applies within the, the health of the church. It applies evangelistically as we seek to share the gospel. We'll see uh, next week in chapter 9 a really amazing uh, chapter where Paul says to the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jews. I changed how I operated just for the sake of seeking to share Christ with someone else. So a question for you. In what ways are you prepared to give up the freedoms that you have and you enjoy because you know Jesus? He set you free. In what areas are you prepared to give them up for the good of someone else in the church family? Or maybe, just maybe, you want the church family to be all made in exactly your image. And you're not going to give any of your freedoms up. And so they have to do the moving and the running rather than you. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Or are we prepared to flex and give for the sake of someone else? Maybe a younger Christian. Maybe someone who's not from a religious background. Maybe someone who's from a, um, a, a, a religious context far from ours. We think, you know, I'm free to eat meat. I want to share the gospel with someone in a very different context. So I'm not going to eat the meat that I could eat for the sake of them. So many things that we could think through. I'd love you to think about those as you head. But our time is done and we're going to spend some time sharing the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper now. But we have seen that the freedom Christ has won for us is a very, very precious thing. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. The fact that we've been set free to know God through Jesus Christ. If you're in a relationship with him, he has set you free to live. Will you live your life for him? And will you use your freedom for others? Use and serve one another in love. Think about them, not just your rights. That's a good word for us in our age, which is so obsessed with what we can do and what we want to do and what we have to do. No, serve others for God's sake. Let's have a moment of quietness and then I'll pray.
We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your word. We thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that uh, even though we were far from you, your love went further still. You've brought us into a relationship with yourself. You've renewed us, given us joy, forgiven us our sins. Lord, so many wonderful things. But we, we do pray you forgive us for the times when we've so lived in the freedom of that that we've actually trampled on other people. We've not thought about the way they're still working through what it means for them to follow Christ. So help us to use the freedom that you've given us for your glory and for the blessing and the good of others. Help us to identify areas in our lives where we might be prepared to give things up. Not because we have to, but because we want to for the blessing of others within your church family. And in so doing, would you receive the glory in our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.